Hello all, and I welcome you to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, brought to you as ever by your host Paul, the true crime enthusiast of the show's title. On the podcast, each week we tend to look at the more unfamiliar, obscure, and often long forgotten or not covered cases that the UK has in its dark history, with a mix of solved and some unsolved cases, as we did last episode with some of Avon and Somerset's cold cases. As always, I thank you guys for joining me, your continued listens mean the world, New listeners and long-time friends of the show alike, welcome back or welcome, and I hope this week finds everybody good and well. Cheers to my latest Patreon supporters of the show, that's John Murphy and Robert DiCastro. I know that sometimes you may be playing catch-up here, and it may be a week or so before I do name-check any supporters, as I say I do, but it does all tend to be when pledges are made against when I've recorded. It changes each week as I'm a rolling shift worker, but it will never pass more than a week, and I do always get around to it. Your kind support is much appreciated anyway, and I hope that you've enjoyed the bonus episodes of the show which are now available for you, five of which are now available for anyone else interested in becoming a supporter, along with some other offers. Funky new stickers are available now as well, I must add. The details of everything is in the show notes this week, along with my contact details and social media links for following the show. This week I've got two promos from across the pond. I've got Mike Brown's Dark Poutine and Jamie Rice's Murderish. If you like the sound of these, then you can find both wherever you grab your podcasts from. And links to each can be found in the show notes as ever this week. I'll pass you over to the hosts to explain what they're all about, because that's the point of a promo really, isn't it? Have you been bludgeoned to death with Ted Bundy stories? Are you choking on too many Hillside Strangler podcast episodes? As awesome as those are, cleanse your palate and add something new to your true crime diet. Why not try some Dark Poutine, a podcast from north of the 49th parallel? We cover Canadian crimes and dark histories. Some of the stories you may know nothing about, but they beg to be told. And, with Canada being the biggest, small country on the planet, we even have personal connections to some of the crimes and history we chat about. Join two real live Canadians every week as we serve up another helping of dark poutine. We are substantially creepy, sometimes meaty, always cheesy, but very rarely sorry. So come on up north and fill your ears with some dark poutine. Hey everyone, I'm Jamie, and I host a podcast called Murderish, which takes you inside stories of murder and other creepy events. The first episode of Murderish lets listeners be a fly on the wall for a first-degree murder trial. The story is told from a juror's perspective as I was that juror. If you are a true crime junkie and need to know every detail, you'll feel right at home with this podcast. Follow Murderish on Twitter at MurderishPod, and on Facebook at Murderish Podcast. And don't worry, this doesn't mean you're a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. Thanks very much to Jamie and Mike there. That's Murderish and Dark Poutine. Available from the usual suspects, iTunes, Podcast Addict. You know the drill by now, I'm sure. So this week on the show... The case recounted on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast is one from my home area again, North Wales. It took place just six years ago in a small town that's incredibly close to where I'm from. 
the town of Mould, that my mum still goes for a bimble around each Wednesday market day at the infamous Mould Market. It was here in Mould, not at the market of course, where a crime occurred that was so evil and horrific that it shocked the community to the core and devastated many. It's one that I remember vividly still, although outside the area in the UK, I don't believe it will be too familiar a case this one. I always try to look out to see if a case I have in mind has already been covered by any podcasts of the true crime genre, because I believe in a bit of etiquette. So I have looked for this one, and I haven't found it if it has, but of course it may very well have been, and I may just have missed it. Being from the local area that it occurred in, it's a case that I've been planning to cover for a while on the show, and living nearby, I was able to visit some scenes concerned with the case, which I hope will add a bit more colour and detail to the narrative. I have tried to maintain sensitivity and respect for all concerned whilst creating the episode, and I've not tried to sensationalise any of the aspects of the crime that you'll hear within. It's a case of simply what we do. As has been said before, it's all or nothing on the show really, isn't it? Tact, I believe, is a very important thing. As ever on the show, this episode does contain some content of a sexual nature and descriptions of crimes that some listeners may find disturbing and upsetting so discretion is advised. With that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast as we look back at the case of the New Brighton Vet. The town of Mould in Flintshire, North Wales, is the administrative seat of Flintshire County Council, with its brutalist council offices a dominating and well-known site among the people who hail from the area. It's just four miles where I'm from myself, where I grew up, It's a place I know very well indeed, and it's loved by some, to others it lives up to exactly how it sounds. It's got a couple of good record shops, a couple of alright pubs, and famous residents hailing from the immediate vicinity include Welsh novelist Daniel Owen, actor Reese Evans, and Coldplay guitarist Johnny Buckland. Now I'm not a Coldplay fan in the slightest, so thanks very much for that mould. Bit of history trivia for you as well. Mould is also the place where the largest ever discovered piece of prehistoric worked gold was found and it's now held in the British Museum. It also has a Weatherspoons named after it as well though. When I was researching for this episode I came across a description of Mould that read Today it looks like a typical provincial town in Ireland. By day the farm machinery and the trucks pass without notice. At night the streets are practically deserted. One person who would have agreed with this certainly was mould vet Catherine Gowing. After all, Catherine was from Ireland herself. The youngest daughter from a farming family, Catherine had aspirations of setting up her own veterinary practice from her father's farm at Kinnity, County Offaly in the Republic of Ireland. Catherine had since a small child been an animal lover, and being from farming stock, she equally loved the land and the outdoors also. She devoted herself to following this dream and had worked hard at school, which she had a natural aptitude for, and she did extremely well at. She attended St. Brendan's Community College in Burr, where she received a secondary education and excelled in biology and the science subjects. Even though she initially pursued other interests, Catherine was a member of a very select group of Irish education high achievers who successfully completed honours grades in all three of the Leaving Certificate Science subjects and combined with her love of animals and a caring personality that highlighted care and respect for others above all and at all times. 
None of her tutors were surprised when she graduated and went on to study to become a vet. So as we say, Catherine had excelled in her education and she was offered a place at the University of Veterinary Medicine in the Hungarian capital of Budapest to study to become a vet. Beautiful city, highly recommended if you ever get the chance to go there. Catherine snapped her hand off and as well as studying hard, with a caring and friendly nature and sense of humour, she effortlessly made friends. One of these friends was a woman a few years older than Catherine called Jane Doyle. And as Jane was also from Ireland, from Robinstown in County Meath, the two hit it off and became close friends. In fact, Catherine and Jane became inseparable, studying together, socialising as well. Photographs of the pair show happy times at festivals, parties and events, and before long, both Catherine and Jane had qualified as vets together. By April 2011, Jane Doyle had a place working as a vet at the Evans Veterinary Practice on Clayton Road in Mould. Now coincidentally this was the exact same vets that my folks used to use when they had their dog until sadly last year they didn't. When a vacancy at the Evans Practice for a vet came up, Jane recommended Catherine for the position. The staff and practice manager liked her immensely and offered her the position instantly when she came for interview. And so both Jane and Catherine found themselves working together. Catherine loved Mould and the staff and clients of the Evans Veterinary Practice loved her too. She fitted in so well and was a popular choice for all the locals who brought their animals into the practice. Jane rented a house that was provided by the practice in a quiet cul-de-sac named Kaiissa in the village of New Brighton, which is the next village up past the council offices in Mould. It's only a five minute drive from Clayton Road. Jane had invited Catherine to move in with her when she had accepted the position, which Catherine had accepted graciously, and for a while life was great. Although she would have undoubtedly have had male admirers, after all 37-year-old Catherine was tall, slim, athletic, with long dark hair, a great smile and a soft Irish accent, but Catherine seemed to instead devote her life to her work, and she didn't have time for dating very much. She was single, but Jane, however was dating. On Friday October the 12th 2012, Jane had the weekend off from work and had arranged to fly home to Robinstown to visit her family until Sunday. She'd set off that morning on an early flight and Catherine had happily arranged to make up the cover at the practice that Friday so that her friend could go. After all, Catherine would herself soon be making a trip back to Ireland in December to visit her 83-year-old father John and his 75-year-old retired schoolteacher mother Maureen at their farm. By all accounts, Catherine was actually planning to return home there to live, as she wanted to be closer to her family. That Friday evening, Catherine had finished work at the practice just before 8pm. She herself had the weekend off, and had arranged to attend a Sunday dinner at her colleague's house, and after changing out of her vet overalls, she'd got into a burgundy-coloured Renault Clio car, and headed not towards home, but instead passed there and towards the large Asda supermarket in the nearby small town of Queensferry. This is just five miles down the A494 past Catherine's home in New Brighton. CCTV at the Asda store in Queensferry captured her walking through the door timed at 8.06pm, wearing blue jeans, a light brown fleece zipped top with white sleeves and white side panels. She had plain black flat shoes on and her brown hair was tied up. 
Catherine spent 33 minutes in the store, which is easily done because I know that Asda, and it's massive after all, and like any supermarket nowadays, it's a bit of a vortex. I'm sure you know what I mean, you go in for a pint of milk and you come out hours later with a new telly and signed up to opticians and Tesco life insurance and tons of other crap that you don't need really and no milk. Catherine had managed to escape all of this and at 8.39pm the tall athletic woman was clocked walking out with an Asda bag full of groceries and a pizza type box. Skip forward now to Sunday the 14th of October. Catherine's friend and colleague, a receptionist who worked with her at the practice, was both vexed and concerned when Catherine didn't show up to attend the afternoon dinner that she'd been invited to. It wasn't like Catherine at all. She was conscientious and reliable, and would have let her friend know if she wasn't attending due to being ill or having other engagements. She didn't respond to any texts, and it's not stated, although it can be surmised that all attempts to call Catherine on a mobile had failed. Now nowadays, for some reason, many people are actually unwilling to call someone to find out why they're late arriving for something. They may text lots and wait for a text and use an excuse, well I haven't had a text from them to say. Perhaps we subconsciously wish to avoid hearing disappointment or fall out with someone that's likely in a discussion. I mean, a text is faceless really, isn't it? Either way, there was no reply from Catherine. Jane Doyle returned home to Caissa late on the Sunday night after driving back from the airport and found the house to be in darkness and empty. It also appeared, and smelled, to have been cleaned. The front door was unlocked, and of Catherine and the car there was no sign. A handbag, mobile phone and laptop were all missing from the house, and Jane wondered if Catherine herself had decided to go away somewhere for the weekend and had perhaps forgotten to lock the front door on her way out. I mean, it's a simple oversight, these things are easily done after all, aren't they? As it was late and Jane was tired, she thought no more about it and went straight to bed, thinking that she'd see Catherine in the morning. Morning came and there was still no sign of Catherine. Now Jane wasn't unduly concerned, maybe Catherine had been at a friend's house that Sunday, had a few drinks and opted to stay over instead of driving back and would go straight to work that Monday morning from wherever she was. So Jane got herself ready and went off to the practice as usual. But when she got there, Catherine hadn't shown up for work for 9am. And rather than anger her bosses, this alarmed them. Especially when one of the nurses at the practice came in and told them that she had received half a text message from Catherine's mobile phone over the weekend. Half a text message of which is not recorded anywhere through research. I can't tell what it said or... The owner of the practice, David Evans, said later, One of the nurses was concerned about her on Saturday or Sunday because she'd had half a message from her, from her mobile phone anyway. We thought, since her car was missing, we thought maybe she'd gone somewhere for the weekend or had got into some difficulty or something like that. Jane came in and they asked her about Catherine and she said, I haven't seen her. Jane stayed in the house at Cayessa on Sunday night after she came back from Ireland. We informed the police as soon as she didn't turn up for work at 9 o'clock on Monday morning. Then we left it to the police. So police were contacted by staff at the practice and Catherine was reported missing. Jane Doyle was especially concerned and tried several times that day, even after Catherine was reported missing, to contact her by a mobile phone. It was dead. 
getting more and more upset, she eventually was to make the journey just a short distance away to Mould Police Station, where she went to give a statement about Catherine. Police took the disappearance seriously. Catherine was not someone to go off on a whim, and this disappearance was as much against her character as it could possibly be. Checks with her family and friends revealed that no one had heard from her or seen her since she'd left the practice that Friday evening, and a search of traffic cameras revealed a Renault Clio heading into Queen's Ferry, where she was captured on CCTV shopping in Asda that Friday evening. Walking out of Asda was the last discernible sighting of Catherine. Catherine's sister Emma and her husband Shay flew over to North Wales as soon as Catherine was reported missing. At a press conference, a tearful sister issued a heartfelt plea to the public for assistance, saying, Please look, please search, please help us find our beautiful sister. Catherine is a kind, sensitive, beautiful person. She's passionate about animals and utterly devoted to my family. She's my best friend, she's the light of my life and she's the light of my parents' life. If you have any information about Catherine, no matter how trivial you think it is, Please contact the police. Heading the missing persons inquiry, Detective Superintendent John Hansen said, Our priority is to trace Catherine, and we would urge anyone who has seen her, or a Renault Clio, bearing the Irish registration plate 00D 99970, to contact the North Wales Police Incident Room on 101. This is totally out of character for Catherine, and the public's assistance in the search cannot be emphasised enough. But police were rapidly becoming more convinced that Catherine had come to some serious harm, and by Tuesday the 16th of October, the inquiry was to suddenly take a new turn and a new focus. A forensic examination of the house in Kayissa was carried out. The fact this was done so early on shows just how serious and concerned police were that they were dealing with something more ominous than a 30-something going away to clear a head for a few days. And although the house was found to be relatively tidy with nothing appearing to have been stolen, a length of fabric was found lashed around the leg of Catherine's bed as though it had been used in a restraint and semen stains were found in the bed in itself. Now while this in itself suggested nothing ominous had happened, Catherine was single and she wasn't in the habit of bringing home random one-night stands. Police were sure that something had happened to her, and a sample of the semen was taken for comparison. It was to provide police with a result quite close to home. When Jane had gone to the police station to give a statement about her missing friend, she had been accompanied by a boyfriend of a few months, Clive Sharp, a 46-year-old clothing factory supervisor from Bethesda in Gwynedd. Jane and Clive had been involved for a few months, having met some time before on an online dating site, and he'd turned up at the practice to show Jane a new car that he'd just bought. But upon hearing of Catherine's disappearance, he expressed his concern and opted to go with Jane to Mould Police Station while she made a statement, being the supportive boyfriend. He knew Catherine, as since he'd started seeing Jane, he'd regularly stay over at the house in Kayissa that the two women shared. Catherine didn't like him from the start. She was uncomfortable with him, but being loyal to Jane, she hadn't told her this, although she had confided this in others, such as her mother Maureen. 
The day after Catherine was reported missing, Sharp was arrested on suspicion of her murder. He was questioned for several days and continued to be held on suspicion of the murder of Catherine Gowing, despite nobody being found and no trace of her car. Why? Well, two reasons. Firstly, a routine check on the background of Clive Sharp made alarm bells start to ring, because Clive Sharp had a disturbing past. What was discovered, what Jane didn't know, was that for all Sharp appeared relatively charming and plausible, and Jane had indeed fallen madly in love with the guy. Clive Sharp actually had a long criminal record dating back 30 years. He was a convicted rapist, one that had in his past already been sentenced to prison terms totalling 14 years for appalling sex crimes against women, and that he was a sexual predator who police suspected had put into action a sick and sadistic fantasy, which he'd already told the police about whilst previously incarcerated. So while Sharp was in custody, the search for Catherine went on. He wasn't saying anything, repeatedly denying having anything to do with Catherine's disappearance. He claimed that he'd been with his family over the weekend, visiting his stepfather and his daughter Natalie over in the nearby village of Sealand, which is near Chester. Now both these were spoken to and they confirmed that they'd indeed seen Sharp on Sunday the 14th and that he'd appeared normal, he was his usual happy chatty self. But a check of Sharp's movements before this, and CCTV images, suggested that he'd been around the area a lot earlier than Sunday. As a result of his arrest, a DNA sample was taken from Sharp, as is standard, and it was checked against forensic samples recovered from Catherine's bedroom. This was the second reason that he was kept, because the semen found in Catherine's bedding was found to be a perfect DNA match for Clive Sharp. Two days after Sharp had been arrested, and magistrates had granted an extension to his custody, a couple out walking past an abandoned quarry nearby discovered the remains of a burnt-out car. Now the quarry is near the village of Altami, which is a small flincher village just off the A494, and it's just two miles from Kayesa. It's literally the next village up again from New Brighton. It's pretty much just a road and today it gives way more to industrial units rather than housing. And the quarry is located down Pinfold Lane in Altami. There's another one for you Google Maps there. And turning left as you head down the lane, there's a quite densely wooded area that skirts a bridle path. There'll be a video that I took whilst I was at the scene available on the True Crime Enthusiast Podcast Facebook discussion group shortly following this episode so you can get the drift of what it's like. So a couple walking down here on the evening of Thursday the 18th of October noticed a car completely burnt out, abandoned well off the path, so much so that it was almost difficult to spot. The couple rang police to inform them of their discovery, and as Catherine's disappearance, and by that time suspected murder, was widespread news, plus the proximity of finding a burnt out car from where she'd disappeared, and knowing her car had not been flagged up on any of the traffic cameras leaving the mould area. Before long, the area was cordoned off, and a detailed forensic examination of the vehicle began. The vehicle had been completely immolated, and no possessions or documents were found in the remains that could identify the owner, but the shape of the car, 
appeared to be that of a Renault Clio. A thorough examination of the vehicle meant that confirmation was soon to come that this was indeed Catherine's car, but of a body there was no sign. Now this grim news was told to Catherine's sister and family, and Emma and Shay remained in North Wales to assist the police with the investigation, whilst the hunt for Catherine continued. It's sadly likely that both now feared the worst. Maybe they didn't want to believe it, but a discovery like that usually isn't a good sign, is it? And police will have undoubtedly, as straight as possible, while still being tactful, begun to prepare them for the worst. This discovery of the vehicle was put to Clive Sharp, but he again denied having anything to do with Catherine's disappearance. Magistrates in Prostatin granted police a further 36 hours to hold Sharp for questioning on suspicion of murder, and on the 19th of October, a week after Catherine was last seen alive, District Crown Prosecutor Karen Dixon said, Having carefully carried out a detailed review of the evidence gathered so far, we have concluded that there is sufficient evidence to charge Clive Sharp with murder. At a special weekend sitting of Mould Magistrates Court the following morning, Clive Sharp was charged with the murder of Catherine Gowing and was remanded in custody. When asked, Sharp said he was of no fixed abode, but gave an address at Coida Park Industrial Estate in Bethesda in Gwynedd, the industrial unit where he worked. He was told he was being remanded in custody on the charge, and would appear again in court to be asked to enter a plea on January the 7th. With Sharp remanded in custody, the search for Catherine continued, but now police were very much looking for a body instead of a missing person and they started with the quarry where a car was found. There are several deep pools at the quarry, and a river flowing through the woods right by it, and the search for Catherine's body began there. For several days, police specialist divers searched the pools in river in vain, and specialist cadaver dogs combed the area, but nothing was found, and the decision was taken to widen the search area. Therefore an appeal was put out to attempt to trace the movements of Catherine's Irish registered Renault Clio, registration number 00D99970, and Sharp's black Volvo S40, registration number AG58JHE, between Friday October 12th and Monday October 15th. Any sightings of either car in this time frame could help pinpoint an area for police to look. The potential area otherwise was just far too vast. The search areas were expanded to take in at least 30 possible areas of interest, and a pond in nearby Buckley known as the Trap, which coincidentally was also mentioned in the third bonus Patreon episode of the show, was one of the places that was searched, as it's right at the other end of Pinfold Lane. Nothing was found here though, and as the days passed, the search areas were checked and crossed off one by one. The search was widely chronicled in the local and national press at the time, with pictures of Catherine's smiling face becoming a familiar sight in the daily papers. Aside from the obvious hopes of her family that she'd be found, you'd have to have a heart of stone to see pictures of a missing loved one like that and not to feel for the family. It must be agonising to feel lost like that and surely you can't know how it feels until you've actually been in that situation. 
You'd surely hope against hope with them that she wasn't gone and she would indeed turn up alive somewhere before stark reality kicked in. Sadly, that stark reality kicked in on October the 31st. Police divers were searching a shallow pool known as the Lum, which is in a field just off Manor Road in the village of Sealand, five miles away from New Broughton down the A494. It's about 200 yards from the house where Sharp's mother and stepfather lived, and so was a place that was well known to him. It was a practical area that divers could search thoroughly, because it's just a shallow pond. The next option to search was the River Dee, which flows out into the Dee estuary, and as it was only a few feet deep, anything to be found in there would be. Something was found. At the bottom of the pond, divers recovered two packages loosely wrapped in plastic bags. The items were removed and examined on the bank. It was a human right hand and a human right foot. The following day, a spokesperson for North Wales Police issued the following short statement. Following information received by members of the public, recent searches have focused on fields in Manor Road, Sealand. Yesterday, search team officers discovered human remains in a shallow pool within the field known locally as the Lum. At this time, those remains have yet to be formally identified as this will require medical as well as forensic examination. Post-mortem is planned for later today. At this time we are not able to comment further. However, Catherine Gowing's family have been informed of this distressing development and clearly our thoughts are with them at this very difficult time. I would ask that they be allowed privacy to come to terms with this news. On the 2nd of November, an off-duty Cheshire police officer was out walking on the banks of the River Dee at Higher Ferry near Chester, which is just over two miles away from where the hand and foot were found. As he was walking, he spotted an object floating in the water that caught his eye and made him stop and look. It was soon discovered to be a dismembered human torso, wrapped in plastic. A post-mortem was carried out on each set of human remains, but no discernible cause of death could be established. However, it was confirmed beyond any doubt through DNA testing that the remains found were sadly those of Catherine Gowie. The search continued for several weeks up to the end of the year, but those were the only pieces of Catherine that have to this day ever been found. It was believed that the remainder of Catherine's body had been dumped into the River Dee. Catherine's body was flown home at the turn of the year, and on the 2nd of January 2013, hundreds of mourners lined the main street in Kinnity as her body was removed from her family home to St. Flannan's Church. The close-knit rural community came together and packed the church to pay their respects to Catherine and to show support to her elderly mother and father Maureen and John, her sister Emma and her brother-in-law Shay. The Gowan family were also joined by family, friends and Catherine's work colleagues from Mould. Kinnity Parish Priest Father Michael O'Meara said Catherine's family and the wider community had been sustained by their faith. I welcome Catherine home to this community that she was such a part of. She was loved by everybody and surrounded by that love, he remarked. Father O'Meara described Catherine as a beautiful, talented 
loving young lady who was loved by everyone in the community. He thanked the community for their continued support and extended a special thanks to representatives of the Welsh Police. Less than two weeks later, on the afternoon of Monday the 14th of January 2013, Clive Sharp stood in the secure dock at Court No. 1 at Mould Crown Court and was asked how he pleaded. The hearing lasted just eight minutes and Sharp, dressed in a prison-issue grey top and trousers, said nothing during the hearing apart from confirming his name. When the charge was put to him, Elwyn Evans QC, defending, said that the defendant pleaded guilty without any basis of plea. Members of Catherine's family had attended court supported by a family liaison officer and her sister Emma sat just feet from Sharp and looked intently at him. She never once took her eyes from him. Sharp's guilty plea spared the Gowan family the pain of a protracted trial and he himself knew that there could be only one possible outcome for him from this plea. The judge, Mr Justice Griffith Williams, addressed Sharp and said that there could only be one sentence, that of life imprisonment. However, he added, There are a number of concerns about this case which lead me to the view that I should have time to reflect upon it. I have to work out what the minimum term you will serve is before the parole board consider you for release, if you are ever to be released. The judge said he appreciated the delay would add to the upset of Miss Gowan's family, but he said careful assessment was needed. He asked for a complete factual picture of the defendant's previous convictions and previous reports, where he expresses his fantasies, and sentencing was adjourned until February the 25th. So why had Sharp changed his story and admitted his guilt? Was it out of remorse or having time to think and feel bad for Catherine's family? No, not a chance. It was because forensic examination of Catherine's remains revealed undeniable proof that he had killed her and disposed of her. Traces of his DNA were found on her body parts. In the face of undeniable proof such as this, Sharp had admitted his guilt. When the sentencing hearing came around on February the 25th, the horrific story, or as best could be surmised because Sharp had refused to confess the extent of what he had done, came out. Members of Catherine's family were again in court to watch the monster who'd shattered their family be sent down for his crime, and this was the first and only opportunity that they'd had to hear for themselves what had happened on Catherine's final night alive. Andrew Thomas QC, prosecuting, said, This was a sexually motivated murder in which the defendant entered the house in the middle of the night, tied Miss Gowan up and repeatedly raped her. He killed her, then mutilated the body by cutting it into pieces and disposing of it in and near to the River Dee. He also disposed of evidence, for example by setting fire to Miss Gowan's car in a quarry. The court heard that Sharp had met and begun a relationship with Catherine's friend and housemate Jane Doyle a number of months before the murder, and that Catherine had taken an instant dislike to him. A statement from her mother Maureen said, She was very unhappy in the house, but she loved her job. It was part of the practice the house belonged to the practice. Sharp was bizarre, Catherine said. I know if she'd sensed evil to that extent, she'd certainly have moved out. 
She used to check into a hotel when she could afford it if he was around. She felt that uncomfortable in his presence. From day one she was uncomfortable, but what could she do if her flatmate was seeing him? She couldn't say, don't go with him or don't have anything to do with him. Neither woman was aware that Sharp had a long history of sexual offending or even a criminal record, and neither of them knew that Sharp was sexually involved with another woman, one who lived in Gwynedd. Catherine's friend Jane Doyle had flown back to see her family in Ireland on October the 12th, and Sharp knew this. That night, Sharp had gone to spend time with another woman that he was secretly seeing on the side, and they'd engaged in sex. Sharp had then attempted to engage the unnamed woman in bondage, and had tied her to the bed. While she was restrained, Sharp then attempted to get her to consent to perverse sexual acts. Mr Thomas went on, it then became clear he wanted to perform acts that she did not want. They argued, she told him emphatically to stop. He walked out, leaving that lady tied to the bed. Now this was about 9.45pm that Friday evening. The time was confirmed as a trawl through traffic cameras on the A55 captured Sharp's black Volvo S40 after it had left the woman's home. The car was later seen arriving in the Mould area at about 11.15pm the same evening. About an hour and a quarter later, Sharp was seen on CCTV at the Beaufort Park Hotel parking his car. The Beaufort Park is a hotel in New Brighton. It's directly opposite Kaiissa, and coincidentally it's a place that I'm quite familiar with because I used to do amateur dramatics many years ago and myself and the rest of the Clueless Players amateur dramatics group that I am still a part of, used to regularly perform murder mystery evenings there. Now the group's on a long hiatus right now, but one day, watch this space. So after Sharp had parked his car there, CCTV showed him getting out and crossing the road before heading to Catherine's home on foot. At that stage, he may have simply been watching the house, said Mr Thomas. After a period of about 45 minutes, Sharp was then spotted heading back to his car, where he stayed for about another 90 minutes, before returning to Kaiessa at about 2.50am. It is likely this is when the attack began. There was no evidence of a forced entry to the house. Precisely what happened inside the house is unknown, said Mr Thomas to the court. It was believed that Sharp had watched the house for a period of time and ascertained that Catherine was at home. Perhaps through the times that he'd stayed over there, he'd developed an unhealthy attraction to her, and with his earlier plans for perverse sex thwarted, he decided to make his fantasies happen that night. After watching for some time, he went back to his car as his fantasy built and built, and to ensure enough time had passed so that Catherine was sound asleep. Isn't that absolutely just pure evil? Sharp was thought to have made his way over at about 2.50am and used a key that he had to enter the house quietly. I mean, there was no sign of forced entry to the property and it's thought very unlikely that Catherine would have voluntarily let him in. On his person, he had lengths of fabric that were later found to be identical to those used at his place of work. What happened next isn't exactly known but it was likely that Catherine was attacked by Sharp as she lay in bed. She was overpowered and restrained with the fabric that Sharp had removed from the boot of his car. A piece of this fabric used to restrain her was found tied to the leg of the bed. 
she must have also been gagged to prevent her crying out, and was then repeatedly raped and horrifically sexually abused. Sharp semen being found on the bedding pointed to this. At some point when his perverted lust had subsided, Sharp had then killed her. He never has revealed how and when exactly. He then spent the rest of the night at the house before heading into Queen's Ferry the next morning. CCTV as during Queen's Ferry, the same place where the final haunting image of Catherine was seen, captured Sharp buying bleach, bin bags, a petrol can, screwdriver and chillingly a Halloween mask. He was shortly afterwards spotted at a local DIY and camping store named Charlie's nearby in Queen's Ferry again buying a hacksaw and blades. Sharp had then returned to the murder scene and at some point moved Catherine's body to her own car before cleaning up the scene. He had then attempted to cover his tracks and make it look as though Catherine had gone away somewhere for the weekend, taking her handbag, mobile phone and laptop and tidying up the house so as not to leave any suspicion that a crime had taken place. It is possible that she was dismembered in the bath at the house but police have always believed it more likely that Catherine's body was dismembered out in the open somewhere. The exact location has never been determined because Sharp has never revealed where, or why he dismembered her for that matter. The body parts were then wrapped in the bin bags ready for disposal, and on the Saturday evening, the 13th of October, Sharp drove Catherine's car to the quarry and hid it in the wooded area just off Pinfold Lane. He then torched it. His own car had been used to dump the body parts in areas that he knew. First the lump pool near to the house where his stepfather still lived in, then the majority into the River Dee. This was suggested because when Sharp's car was recovered by police, it had been cleaned and valeted that very day. Despite the search for Catherine's body being the largest search in North Wales police history, the force has been unable to recover any more of her remains. Sharp had refused to provide any information ahead of his sentencing. The court heard that the next day, Sunday, Sharp spent time at his stepfather's home with family, where he was described as being happy and chatty as normal. When Miss Gowan did not turn up for work on Monday, she was reported missing to police, and it was that evening that Sharp had attended Mould Police Station with his then-partner Jane Doyle when she made a statement. By the following day, officers following a check on Sharp's background had already formed the opinion that Sharp had killed Catherine and he was arrested and charged with murder within days. The exact details of Sharp's previous convictions could not be revealed before sentencing, but Mr Thomas told the court of previous reports on Sharp in which he had freely admitted in group therapy sessions whilst in prison for sexual offences that his offending could escalate and he told of Sharp's imprisonment and rape fantasies against females which had two endings. The woman lives when he grows tired of her, or ends up dead, either strangled or drowned. Unshaven and dressed in his grey prison-issue clothing, Sharp sat with his head bowed for most of the hour-long sentencing hearing, and again Emma Gowing never took her eyes off him once. Mr Justice Griffith William told him that he would have imposed a minimum term of 42 years but for the fact that he had pleaded guilty. The judge gave no explanation as to why the sentence wasn't a whole life sentence and passing sentence upon him he told Sharp 
This is a horrific, cold-hearted murder carried out to gratify your perverted sexual desires. You are, on any view, a very serious danger to women. What happened in that period of nearly four hours is known only to you. You dismembered and disposed of her body in an attempt to conceal your crime, a callous act which added immeasurably to the grief of her family. I must stress that the minimum term you will serve is 37 years. You will not be released until the parole board says that you are no longer a danger, and that may never be so. Following sentence, outside Mould Crown Court, John and Maureen Gowan's eldest daughter, Emma, gave a touching tribute to the sister that she knew and loved. Truth is truth, the facts are the facts. Our humanity shines when we conduct ourselves with kindness, with compassion, with integrity, when we speak the truth. Catherine was brutally murdered, that is a fact. Catherine conducted her life with love, with kindness, with compassion, with integrity, that's the truth. Catherine had measured herself against the following quote from the American author Albert Pine. What we do for ourselves dies with us. What we do for others and the world is and remains immortal. After the hearing, Detective Superintendent Mark Pierce of North Wales Police praised the tremendous strength and dignity shown by Miss Gowan's family, saying, Clive Sharp has been convicted of a cowardly, premeditated and devastating attack on Catherine, a person who'd done him no wrong and had absolutely everything to live for. Sharp pleaded guilty not through remorse, but only when faced with overwhelming evidence. He now faces life imprisonment, and I doubt a tear will be shed if he's never released. I doubt that too. Emmeline Downing from the Crown Prosecution Service said, Only Clive Sharp can truly know what motivated him to commit such a distressing and brutal act. What is beyond doubt is that the effects of his actions will continue to be felt by Catherine's family and friends for years to come. Our thoughts are with them. But what drives someone to commit such a monstrous crime? Sharp's past record could now be revealed. Hailing from the nearby community of Sealand, Sharp's first conviction dated way back to 1982, when as a 16-year-old youth, he sent letters and made telephone calls to make indecent and offensive sexual remarks to a number of women. Just a year later, he was sentenced to three years' youth custody after a particularly nasty attack that involved him holding a piece of glass to the neck of a 15-year-old girl in Sealand and savagely raping her. Following his release from this offence, there were several years that Sharp didn't come to police attention and he married for the first time. With his first wife, Gillian, Sharp had a daughter that the couple named Natalie, but the marriage was a turbulent one. Gillian was a drinker and drug user, demons which sadly led to her death in 2000. Sharp was in prison at the time that she died. He was again arrested in 1994, aged 28. This time his perverse nature had once again come to the fore when he tried to choke another woman, this time the wife of one of his friends, when she refused his sexual advances. She'd called around to where Sharp was living at the time, a house off Manor Road in Sealand, and he'd made advances towards her, locking her in the house. For this attack, Sharp was jailed for three years for false imprisonment and wounding, but after his release paid another woman to go back to the bedsit that he was living in for sex. He tied her up, 
choked her and threatened her with a knife. This led to an eight-year jail sentence, of which he served five years. Following his release, Sharp was to marry for the second time. His second wife, Sharn, was to describe their relationship later to the North Wales Daily Post. I met Clive at a party and six months later he asked a colleague for my number. We started going out and he was charming. My kids, now 26 and 16, absolutely loved him. He was like a father figure to them. We went for meals together and because he liked fishing so much, we'd go on trips together to Anglesey in North Wales. Now Sharp had kept his appalling catalogue of convictions from his new wife, only telling her so much that he'd spent time in prison before, but claiming it was for assault when he'd caught a friend of his in bed with his first wife, Gillian. Clive and Sean married in December 2003, six months after getting together, and at first, Sean says Sharp was like a perfect husband and father. She went on, He bought an old mini for my son Guto, which they did up together. They had a father-son relationship, and he got on with my daughter Linos, buying her first car for her when she was 17. He loved the children like they were his own. He got up in the middle of the night if they needed it. He took great care of them. But five years into their marriage, things changed. Sharp began to show a terrifying side to his personality, which would soon turn into repeated and violent beatings for Sharp. She went on to tell the Post, in the last three years we were together he changed. He became moody, withdrawn and he'd stay up late to avoid coming to bed. Pick arguments then take off for days. He never explained where he'd been apart from saying that he was sleeping rough in the car. The first day he was violent to me was my birthday. He seemed to get particularly mad around my birthdays. He was trying to do plumbing for a new washing machine when something went wrong and water squirted everywhere soaking him. He went into a huge rage and punched me in the face and broke my ribs too. Clive threw me to the ground and started kicking me in the side. He was kicking me on the floor and even knocked me out cold. Once he grabbed my throat and pushed me against the wall and warned, Don't ever laugh at me again, bitch. After the violence, he'd buy me flowers or chocolates and say how sorry he was, that it would never happen again. But it always did. Sean had always kept the violence hidden from her family. She used to use makeup to hide any bruises or scars, and even convinced her family that a broken rib that time was caused by the assault, was actually caused by her slipping after having a shower. She says, I was scared, I was frightened about what Clive would do if I did something about it. I kept quiet about all the abuse. Once I became pregnant and he told me to have an abortion because he couldn't love two people at once. Me and the baby. So I did have an abortion. I did want that baby, but Clive said it was it or me. But it took a vile sex attack to be the final straw and to give Sean the courage to insist that Sharp pack his bags and leave for good, she recalls. Two days before he left for good, he came home early from work as I was upstairs hoovering. He pushed me onto the bed and raped me. Then he left the house after he'd finished with me. He came back two days later and said, Sorry babe, that wasn't meant for you. That was in February 2011. I just packed his bags and threw him out. He left quietly and I never heard from him again. Now I absolutely despise rape and any domestic violence of any kind and my heart goes out to people who find themselves 
and make it clear through no fault of their own whatsoever in such a situation. It's deplorable and something that there is never any excuse for. And the comment, sorry babe, that wasn't meant for you. And it boggles the mind as to which poor soul it was meant for, doesn't it? Recalling the moment that she learnt of his involvement in Catherine's murder, Shan says, My daughter phoned me and said, Ma'am, it's really bad, it's Clive. He's been arrested on suspicion of murder. I just couldn't believe it. I felt sick when I read the newspapers. In some ways, I feel like I've escaped. I just couldn't speak out about him. You can hide a bust rib. I just said I had a pain in my chest. Looking back, I think I made the right decision to kick him out. It could have been me killed like poor Catherine was. I've been so lucky. Sadly, Mrs. Gowing wasn't. The Clive I knew at the start of our marriage was a lovely man, but he changed. I'm still married to him now, but I'll definitely get a divorce now. I just want to put all of this behind me. Clive is a sick, sad man. They should do to him in prison what he did to Catherine Gowing. Kill him and chop him up. I'm sorry, but that's what I think. In May 2013, a memorial for Catherine was held at Our Lady of the Rosary Catholic Church in Buckley, organised by staff at Evans Veterinary Practice in Mould. The emotional memorial included singing Catherine's favourite hymns, including Amazing Grace and Calon Lan. Children from St David's Catholic Primary School in Mould sang All Things Bright and Beautiful, and there were readings and eulogies from Catherine's colleagues Carol Davis, Kate Kinreed, Barbara Elder and Fran Edwards. A book of remembrance was filled with tributes, and Catherine's boss Esma Evans wrote, I'm so glad to have known you and worked with you for 18 months, a dear and gentle person who will always be remembered. You are missed so much by everyone. Emma read from letters that the Gowan family had received from the people of North Wales and said that their love had helped them to come to terms with what had happened. She told those gathered, If Catherine was here, she'd probably quote the Beatles, Love, 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 love is all you need. She was a beautiful light. She shone very brightly. She enriched the lives of all she encountered, all God's creatures. Her light is gone from our mortal world. She now shines elsewhere. In the months following Catherine's death, Jane Doyle left the practice, utterly heartbroken at losing a friend in such horrific circumstances, and racked with guilt that the man that she had loved had caused so much horror and misery. She moved to the northwest of England to try to rebuild a shattered life. Now I can understand why someone would feel guilt in such a situation, and indeed the need to get away, but this horror is in no way Jane's fault whatsoever. Sometimes we just can't help who we fall for, and a predator such as Sharp was obviously well practised in keeping his past hidden. And what of Clive Sharp now? Well, he's never given any details of the crime apart from to plead guilty, and what has been recounted here is the hypothesis based on the evidence available. He's long since been divorced by Sharp, and he's been disowned by his only now surviving relative, his daughter Natalie. She dropped his surname and refuses to have anything to do with him whatsoever. He now even has a grandchild, Joel, that he'll never meet or never lay eyes upon. He was 46 years old when he was sentenced to life imprisonment, and after serving the minimum term, he will be 83 years old before ever being considered for release.
His name was in the news again last year when it was revealed that he'd taken part in the Sexual Offenders Treatment Programme, or the acronym SOTP, whilst he was in prison for rape in the 1990s. The scheme was finally ended in March 2017, after studies showed that rapists and paedophiles who took part in it were more likely to re-offend. Sharp had been one of those who had spoken about his sick desires while taking part in group therapy, and instead of suppressing his behaviour, the sessions actually encouraged it. A Ministry of Justice review found that the group talks allowed offenders to share contacts and sources or to normalise criminal behaviour. The treatment had been in use since 1992 and continued to be used despite growing reservations from professionals and according to the report the programme, which cost more than £100 million throughout its shelf life, was delivered to groups of eight men at a time who completed the course over 180 hours. Because the reoffending statistics were so high, it was thought that this may have been as a result of the sole emphasis on group treatment, as this group treatment may normalise individuals' behaviour. When stories are shared, their behaviour may not be seen as wrong or different, or at worst, contacts and sources associated with sexual offending may be shared. As sickening as it sounds, fantasies may even actively be swapped or stored when hearing about the fantasies of seven other men at the same time. This may give colour and detail to an offender's own sick fantasies, and if everyone's doing it, then it's alright, isn't it? No, of course it's not alright. It's evil and monstrous, and I struggle to see where a place on this earth for evil such as that is. I really, really do. While Clive Sharp will, with any luck, never be able to inflict his disturbing fantasy on any other female ever again because he's caged until he dies, the loss still goes on for Catherine's heartbroken family, who are undoubtedly still coming to terms with her loss. A year after her death, their mother spoke to the North Wales Daily Post. It's just as raw, maybe even worse, because we were anaesthetised at the beginning. The shock was unreal. It did sink in, but it wasn't as real as it is now. All our friends in Wales and Ireland, I would say, have got me through. The beautiful letters and the poems, I think the love the people had for Catherine, I felt it. They almost knew her as I know her, a perfect human being. She was everything I would have loved to have been. Words like that just bring home what a great loss Catherine is, don't you agree? Clive Sharp will, most likely, die in prison for his crime. I'd be amazed if this guy wasn't responsible for other crimes. This is a dangerous, lifelong sexual offender who was three times imprisoned for nasty sex crimes before Catherine's horrific murder, who started making dirty phone calls and writing pornographic letters at age just 16, who thought nothing of holding broken glass to the throat of a 15-year-old girl while raping her, and try to throttle at least two others. And that's what people know about. The years he'd spent in prison obviously did nothing to reform him, just served nothing more than to sharpen and heighten his perverted sexual desires. I mean, Sharp himself admitted as long ago as the late 90s that he had a long-standing fantasy of imprisoning, raping and killing a woman, which was built on whilst incarcerated, and he came out like a primed hand grenade. Who knows what other monstrous crimes he's committed, but I'd wager that he has. If you looked at his life as a timeline, 
and you marked off the offences that he was convicted for, can it really be believed that someone so dangerous and depraved would really not offend in between these known offences? Isn't this an absolutely despicable crime? As I've said before on the show, there's no such thing as a nice crime of course, but I thought this one was particularly horrific and sad. I despise any form of sexual offences, and I found it really chilling to actually visit the places mentioned in the episode when you think what's gone on there. Now I'm not some sort of ghoul, but when you do research cases such as these, and you can go to the places involved because they're practically on your doorstep, and you can, through the power of technology, make a video that brings home exactly the places mentioned, well it gives things that much more detail and colour, and it makes a story such as Catherine's stick in the mind a bit more, so no one is forgotten, as is the maxim here. When researching for the episode, I did visit the quarry, I visited Kayessa, and the Lumpool as well and I took a moment at each to remember why I was there and to think of Catherine, which I've documented on the short videos that will be up in the Facebook group and also in the show notes on the WordPress blog. I also, during research, had the privilege of getting to speak to someone who knew Catherine, the owner of a record shop in Mould that I sometimes buy records and true crime books from. He was happy to talk when I explained why, and he gave a glowing testimony about her and a personal anecdote about the care that she'd given to one of his dogs. I did consider visiting the Evans Veterinary Surgery myself to talk to Catherine's ex-colleagues, but I opted out of respect not to stir up old ghosts with people so closely connected with her, and so I left this. Not that I'm in any way considering that she's forgotten by anyone. If you have a look yourselves at the linked Facebook group remembering her that's also on the show notes, you'll see what I mean. It does look to have been inactive for a while now, but on there there can be found many pictures of Catherine in happy times, at various functions, posing happily with friends at festivals and fancy dress parties. Read some of the glowing testimonies from her family, friends and people who knew her, Remember her and her family overall from this episode, not the monster that is Clive Sharp. I thank you for joining me for this episode as we've recounted Catherine's case. I know it's been an upsetting one, but I do anticipate hearing what you guys have thought about the case, and so I invite you to on Facebook in the True Crime Enthusiast podcast discussion group thread, which will be up there now. If you're a new listener to the show and you found the episode entertaining and you want to hear more, then please catch up with the back catalogue of episodes to date. Or as a reminder, there are now five bonus episodes of the show exclusive to Patreon supporters, amongst other offers, for a very reasonable contribution as a supporter of the show. Or if you wish, you can show your support in another way by leaving an honest review of the show on iTunes or any other platforms, All are much appreciated, and the ones of late have been very, very kind, so thanks very much. That's about it from me for this week, but I shall be back next True Crime Thursday with an episode which I look forward to bringing you. Cheers for joining me for this episode all. I'm Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast, wishing you all a happy and safe week, and I shall speak to you again soon. Take care guys, and goodbye for now.